I think a lot of people now realise that they were um, taken for a ride, uh, essentially. Uh, and it was fascinating to hear last week, uh, giving evidence of the COVID inquiry, uh, when uh, Chris Whitty, the uh, chief medical uh, officer, uh, had said that the scientists would not have come up with the idea of lockdown. It was politicians who asked them to. Um, and you know, this, throughout we were being told, we're just following something called the science. Well, we knew at the time there is no such thing as the science. Science needs to be challenged. And there are always other scientists with other views. And there were some very eminent scientists at the time who were asking the important questions and they were being shut up and excluded. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with Sir Graham Brady, Member of Parliament for Altrincham and Sale West and 1922 Committee Chairman. Sir Graham was an early objector to the government's pandemic lockdown restrictions. I always cut Boris Johnson some slack in the immediate response because we didn't know very much about the nature of the virus. Uh, but a few weeks in, we were starting to get a better picture and we were starting to know some things. We knew that the level of infection in the UK was falling before the lockdown started, for instance, which ought to have been giving some signals that might be slightly different ways in which we could uh, deal with the problem. And it was also obvious, I think, from very early on that continuing with that series of lockdown and opening up and lockdown again and then different restrictions uh, was going to cause massive problems. Known as the most discreet man in Westminster, he also talks about his time as longest standing chair of the influential 22 committee. The difficult conversations with prime ministers, I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not pleasant um, and you're dealing with people who have given their lives and their careers uh, to trying to achieve something, usually because they want to achieve some, something for the public good. Um, and uh, they are reaching a very difficult moment in their own lives and, and careers. I'm Lee Hall. This is British Thought Leaders. Sir Graham Brady, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Uh, the polls show that uh, we're looking at a Labour government coming in. Do you see a path to a Conservative victory at this point? And if there is one, what does it look like? I absolutely think there is a path to a Conservative victory at the next general election. It's probably quite a narrow one. And I think we've got to be realistic. The polls at the moment are not good for the Conservative Party. At the same time, I think you can say, looking at the local elections we had recently, Labour wasn't getting the vote share that it would need to form a majority government. And I think the huge difference between now and 1997 when I was first elected is that in 97 there was actual enthusiasm uh, for the Tony Blair-led uh, New Labour uh, government that came in. There is no enthusiasm whatsoever uh, for Keir Starmer or for his party. Uh, in the local elections in my constituency, we took a seat off Labour uh, in, those, uh, in those local votes. Uh, so they're really just not making the breakthrough. So I think what's necessary is for the Conservative Party in government to continue to demonstrate competent, stable government and then move on. And we need to see, I think, an offer, whether it's in the autumn or next spring, uh, that really starts to excite people about 
voting Conservative starts to make people realise the extent of the difference between the parties and the opportunities there will be if they have a Conservative government. There's obviously a bit of a, a culture war going on at the moment between the progressive values and the more traditional values. Do you feel the Tory party should be taking sides in that? Well, oddly, we, I think last year we had uh, Frank Luntz, the American pollster and commentator, come speak to my committee. Uh, he advised us very strongly not to wade into culture wars. He said, let the left fight it out amongst themselves. And I, I think that is probably sensible. Almost all conservatives in this country agree with some uh, basic common sense um, uh, premises, uh, which on the Labour side are tearing people apart. And the inability for people on the left to describe what a biological woman is, for instance, uh, is it's not a problem in the Conservative Party. It's a big problem on the left. So you're the longest standing chair of the 1922 committee. Uh, the, the committee pretty much became a household name uh, during the leadership battles over the last 10 years or so. Is that something you expected to happen when you, when you joined in 2010? No, it isn't. And you know, up until that point, I'd only been in opposition. Uh, I'd only seen the 1922 committee in opposition. Uh, clearly, it has a more important role when the Conservative Party is in government. And the chairman of the committee has a more important role when the uh, Conservative Party is in government. So uh, I, I, I suppose once we were in government, I might have expected uh, a higher profile and a more significant uh, set of duties to fall upon me. Uh, but even then, I could never have uh, imagined some of the things that have unfolded, starting, I suppose, with coalition government, where the role of the 1922 committee sometimes was to uh, be a, a little bit of a, a, a force uh, seeking a more conservative direction from a conservative Liberal Democrat coalition government. And so there was a lot of tension, a lot of internal tension uh, during that period. And then in the last few years, uh, the uh, changes of leadership and uh, related matters uh, certainly have, uh, have been a uh, set of circumstances I would, I would never have imagined uh, 13 years ago. Some of the duties you have, such as being the depository for the votes of confidence, no confidence in the, in the Prime Minister, um, and, and talking to the Prime Minister when it's his or her time to leave, they're, they're pretty big duties. How does it feel to have those? Um, I, I mean, I, th I think the, I learned very early on that the only way to handle the business of letters calling for a confidence vote was to say nothing ever to anybody. Um, and yeah, in a way that's difficult, but once you get used to the fact that you're not going to answer any questions, uh, it's possible to deal with. It is a, um, uh, it is a burden in a way, um, and I suppose the worst times have been when uh, there has been a protracted period of uncertainty where it's felt possible that the threshold would be crossed for a confidence vote to take place, and it hasn't for a period of many months. Uh, and that can be a little bit uh, wearing. Uh, but uh, I guess I've, I've done this for long enough and had enough experience of it. I've, I've got used to handling that situation. The difficult conversations with prime ministers, I mean, they're, they're, not, they're not pleasant. Um, and you're dealing with people who have given their lives and their careers uh, to trying to achieve something, usually because they want to achieve some, something for the public good. Um, and uh, they are reaching a very difficult moment in their own lives and, and careers. So I, I think it's important to be 
sensitive and to understand the um, difficulties faced by the uh, other person in the room. Um, but uh, in a sense, it's a duty that somebody has to undertake, and, uh, and it's fallen to me. You're known as the most discreet man in Westminster. After you've left politics, can we expect you to take the 1922 secrets to the grave, or will we see them in Waterstones? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, um, if I'm the most discreet man in Westminster, it may be because there's very little competition on, that, uh, on those grounds. Um, uh, no, I, I certainly uh, intend to write a memoir. I don't think I need to put anything scurrilous in it. So I think I've had uh, such a, an interesting and different perspective on some fairly momentous events. I think it'll be a good read. Uh, and th there are things I think that the public has a r right to be able to uh, know and that historians of the future will, will want to uh, be able to have as a work of reference. The one Prime Minister after another has wanted to keep you in the role of the 22 committee chair. Did you ever feel frustrated at playing this diplomatic role within the party and want to be more of an agitator? <laughs> uh, well, certainly, I suppose I, I got involved in politics because I wanted to advance particular uh, policy uh, positions. Uh, I suppose, uh, to, to be fair, as chairman of the 1922 committee, whilst mostly I don't uh, speak very publicly about those uh, positions, I do have access to the uh, ministers and to the prime ministers who can uh, formulate policy. Uh, so sometimes I've been more successful than others in shaping uh, the direction of policy, but I do have their, their ear. So the, the committee chair role is, is generally uh, quite a neutral role, but on occasion you have spoken out about issues that you, you feel you need to speak out about, such as Boris Johnson's lockdown policies, Theresa May's Brexit deal. Why did you feel the need to break from convention at that point? Well, it, it's a difficult balance to strike. I am a member of parliament. I represent my own uh, constituents uh, and have a duty to serve the national interest. And if I can see things that are going in the wrong direction, things that aren't going to work, uh, then of course I have, as chairman of the 1922 committee, the opportunity to speak to a prime minister and uh, privately uh, to urge them to uh, change direction. Um, but when that's not happening, uh, when I'm not getting anywhere in those private discussions, I think it's, uh, it's reasonable that from time to time I will then speak out uh, publicly. And those, obviously, such big issues, uh, achieving a worthwhile and deliverable uh, Brexit uh, withdrawal agreement, uh, the unprecedented uh, removal of people's liberties uh, that took place in the COVID response. And uh, I, th I think it's important sometimes in these very, very big issues to, to speak out. Of course, with, um, with the withdrawal agreement, with the Brexit issue, uh, I tried very hard to move it into a place that was going to work. And the amendment that I tabled uh, in, I think, uh, January of 2019 uh, was actually the only positive proposition uh, on Brexit that secured a majority in the House of Commons, which was that we would have the withdrawal agreement, but uh, with alternative arrangements at the Irish border, so getting rid of the protocol that's been a problem for uh, so long until this year's Windsor Framework Agreement. Yeah. Uh, and that clearly had the support of the House of Commons. Uh, unfortunately, the government didn't or couldn't uh, take it forward and secure that agreement uh, with the EU. But I did that, I suppose, really to try to prove to the other side in the negotiations that there was a uh, formula 
uh, which could command majority support. Because I think there were people who were trying to persuade the EU side in the negotiations that they should simply drop anchor uh, and not engage on the basis that there was so, simply no proposition around which uh, the British uh, House of Commons could unite. And I was able to demonstrate that there was such a proposition. On, uh, on lockdown, uh, I, I just think that it was very obvious almost from the start. I always cut Boris Johnson some slack in the immediate response because we didn't know very much about the nature of the virus. Uh, but a few weeks in, we were starting to get a better picture and we were starting to know some things. We knew that the level of infection in the UK was falling before the lockdown started, for instance, which ought to have been giving some signals that might be slightly different ways in which we could uh, deal with the problem. And it was also obvious, I think, from very early on that continuing with that series of lockdown and opening up and lockdown again and then different restrictions uh, was going to cause massive problems. And I think the problems that we face today are almost all either the consequence of or were made much worse by the response to COVID. So whether it be the state of the public finances, uh, as we uh, not only spent £400 billion, but also incurred an enormous opportunity cost in terms of foregone growth at the time. Uh, the problems in the National Health Service, the longer waiting lists, the problems with people who should have had diagnosis uh, and were deterred from attending appointments or going to hospitals during the COVID lockdowns. Uh, a lot of people who are much more ill today than they needed to be. Uh, and the massive problems in uh, mental health, especially among young people. Uh, we have literally twice as many people in this country uh, presenting with mental health problems as was the case before the COVID lockdowns. And I think a lot of that was fairly obvious that it was going to be uh, a consequence of what was done. And some of us were saying so at the time. So uh, I think it was important that we made the case. Eventually we started to get there and we deterred uh, the government from further restrictions being introduced in uh, December of 2021. Uh, and uh, I think when, when those restrictions weren't uh, imposed and nothing went wrong, mm. uh, I think we rather proved our point that we could have had a lighter touch uh, right the way through. We could have been trusting people to make their own decisions and take their own responsibility for their own safety and the safety of those around them and um, not incurred the enormous economic uh, health and mental health uh, damage that, that was uh, the result of the approach that was taken. You spoke out quite early uh, against the lockdown restrictions at a time when not many others were. Uh, how did that feel to put your head above the parapet at that time? Um, I, I think if you're sticking your neck out like that, it's always a little bit uncomfortable, but I had no doubt that I was doing the right thing. Um, both in terms of the practical consequences, the fact that lockdowns were going to do more harm than good, uh, but also I think the very important moral case. I think governments around the world, with some honourable exceptions, Sweden being the most notable, um, they crossed the line uh, where they moved uh, away from being the servants of the people in their countries uh, to giving them detailed instruction 
on how they should live their lives, whether they were allowed to see their own families, whether they were allowed to start a new relationship. Uh, this is unprecedented. And it, historically, um, of course, quarantine has been used when there's been a, 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 a pandemic in the past, but it's always been quarantine of people who were ill uh, or who were reasonably believed to be infected. Um, we've never tried to quarantine a whole population uh, before. And the idea that government can simply announce a set of rules, require people to follow in every aspect of their lives. And of course, the irony of this is that if, if Boris Johnson hadn't have pursued that extreme lockdown policy, um, then the events that took place in Downing Street that became known as Partygate would never have been an issue. And uh, no doubt his premiership would be continuing now. A recent report described the lockdown policies as a global financial uh, policy failure of gigantic proportions. Do you feel somewhat vindicated by this point? Yes, but you know, I think also we have the Johns Hopkins University report which suggests that the number of lives saved by lockdowns was tiny uh, compared to the number of lives that will be lost as a result of the other consequences uh, from it. So I think all of the evidence uh, is piling up to show that we uh, did the wrong thing. Most countries did the wrong thing around the world. Uh, but I don't think that's, uh, that's an excuse for having got it so badly wrong. We need to learn some lessons, not just about the uh, inefficacy of lockdowns, but also about the way in which policy is made, attitudes to scrutiny of uh, policy. And one of the things I became uh, most active in during the uh, summer of 2020 was uh, in objecting to the fact that the British government was implementing restrictions without either debate or votes in the House of Commons. And I tabled an amendment to the uh, Coronavirus uh, Act, uh, which ultimately the Speaker couldn't call because it wasn't in, in order for procedural reasons. Uh, but the amendment sought to require debate and votes in Parliament uh, to take place on uh, significant restrictions. And uh, it was quite telling afterwards. I remember speaking to one of the uh, people who'd been advising the health secretary at the time who had moved on to another position. And he said, I just wanted to say to you, you know, when you tabled your amendments and we all sat down in the room and we were saying, well, what do we do about this? And he said that uh, uh, then we all looked at each other and said, well, the problem is he's right, isn't he? So I think that the government did at that point concede that there should be debate and there should be votes. But for fully six months, uh, the British government proceeded with those restrictions by ministerial diktat uh, in a way which was entirely unacceptable and should never even have occurred uh, to ministers to do that. And the fact that the House of Commons uh, had mostly been prepared to be sent away, uh, there were probably about 40 of us who attended in person throughout, uh, was a massive uh, reduction in the scrutiny that uh, Parliament normally uh, would provide. And of course, at the time of extreme measures removing people's own responsibility for their own lives, that to me was precisely the time when the House of Commons should have been sitting uh, fully. And it was our duty to be there, and it was our duty, I think, to scrutinize and uh, 
question uh, what ministers were doing. And we now know so much of it was unevidenced. And of course, uh, the people in Amber Town Downing Street who were um, not always following the restrictions themselves uh, were doing so because they knew perfectly well there was no evidence behind most of those uh, restrictions. So you know, I'm glad that I uh, spoke out. I'm glad that I campaigned on it. But I hope some lessons are learned for the future. Do you feel if there was a, another pandemic tomorrow, we're, we're in a different position now and we would handle it better? I think more people would speak out. Uh, I think more politicians would speak out. Uh, I think that uh, we would uh, also find that the public would be less compliant because I think a lot of people now realize that they were um, taken for a ride, uh, essentially. Uh, and it was fascinating to hear last week, uh, giving evidence of the COVID inquiry, uh, when uh, Chris Whitty, the uh, chief medical uh, officer, uh, had said that the scientists would not have come up with the idea of lockdown. It was politicians who asked them to. Um, and you know, th this throughout, we were being told, we're just following something called the science. Well, we knew at the time there is no such thing as the science. Science needs to be challenged. And there are always other scientists with other views. And there were some very eminent scientists at the time who were asking the important questions and they were being shut up and excluded, uh, sometimes by the scientific establishment, sometimes by elements of the media that were forgetting their traditional duty to ask the difficult questions, to expose uh, policy making where it's uh, not based on evidence and, and sound reasoning. Um, so I, I do think that we would get uh, more people speaking out and I hope the government would be, uh, have a little bit more humility uh, if we were to face those circumstances again. And one final issue I wanted to ask you about that I know is an interest of yours is uh, grammar schools. I think you, you joined the, well, you, you got active with the Conservative Party as a teenager to save your local grammar schools in 2007. You also stepped down from a front bench position um, for a, a similar reason. Why are grammar schools, particularly selective grammar schools, so important to you? Uh, they are a, a way of providing uh, a ladder of opportunity for people regardless of where they start off in life. It gave me opportunities that I wouldn't have had uh, without going to uh, Altrincham Grammar School. Uh, it is um, uh, critically important to me that future generations should have the same opportunities regardless of the means of their parents. And you know, we're very good in this country, we have very good independent schools uh, that if you can pay for them, uh, you can get the best education in the world, probably. Um, I think we should be providing exactly the same opportunities to people whose parents can't afford to, to pay for them. And uh, uh, you know, I, I suppose I also have to say, in my own area, uh, the selective system, and it's not just grammar schools, it's the non-selective schools as well, uh, they are all superb. Uh, we have probably the highest standard of state education available anywhere in the country. Uh, and it's really worth defending. Uh, the other parties are uh, generally opposed to grammar schools. Uh, the Conservative Party has always been a supporter, uh, except for that little moment in 2007. And I certainly have no regrets about standing down from the front bench so that I could um, seek to correct the direction that was being taken. So Graham Brady, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. It's a pleasure.